Hello and welcome to Sprott Radio. I'm your host, Ed Coyne, Senior Managing Partner at Sprott Asset Management. I'm pleased today to welcome back two returning guests, John Champaglia of Sprott and Per Jandir from WMC, to give us an update on the world of uranium. Gentlemen, thank you for joining Sprott Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Well, gentlemen, as I understand it, you both just returned from the World Nuclear Symposium in London. Let's start there. John, why don't we start with you? How was that conference? Yeah, it was very interesting. It was the first time I had attended. I think Per will tell you it's kind of the largest nuclear-related conference in the world. It really brings everybody out. And I don't have any historical perspective, but uh, clearly the number of attendees at the event this year was probably the highest it's been in in a long time, which I think is really indicative of the renewed interest we're seeing in this sector. And we had an incredibly busy week in London, where I think we met about close to 40 different investment funds that wanted to talk to us about uh, all things uranium. So it was uh, an incredibly busy week for us. And Per, what's the general vibe over there right now with with that many more people coming to the conference and so many meetings that uh, you all attended? What's the general sense or feeling over there right now about uh, what's going on in this space? I think it's uh, easy to sum up is just incredible optimism. Everybody's really excited. It was the biggest conference they've ever had. The most people attending, over 700, and not just the usual suspects, fuel sellers and the fuel buyers and the organizers. Now you have media there, you have a bunch of investors there, uh, regulators, uh, reactor designers. You get the entire industry all getting together, and it's a great way to kick off the, the fall season after a summer, if you will. This is a question I wasn't planning on asking, but you just said it, so I have to ask. Reactor designers, can we dive into that for a second? Yeah, sure. It's, a, it's, a, it's obviously, I mean, you have the, the regular designs that have been around for a while, but now, obviously, as you know, there's a fair bit of talk about uh, SMRs, the small mm-hmm. modular reactors, and there's a lot of companies there, too. There's a lot of them being developed, clearly some already being licensed. There's a few projects, and I think the furthest one along is, is actually in Ontario, Canada. They've already contracted for the reactor, and they actually came out with a tender for the fuel, even. So now we're starting to see the fuel demand from these reactors are, are hitting the, the regular market. So this is a, it's a pretty big development considering uh, how little development there has been in this field for the last 20 or so years. Everybody's pretty excited about it, for sure. The term SMR, as you mentioned, small modular reactors, that's becoming more and more of a commonly understood term. Some of our listeners may be newer to this allocation, newer to this market. Could you just spend a few minutes talking about SMRs and kind of where they are in the cycle right now? The technologies themselves aren't new. They might be from the 60s and 70s almost. But, but the applications of actually trying to make them commercialize, that's the new aspect of it. And traditionally, you have a reactor is about 1,000 megawatts. But now these SMRs, they're much smaller, about three to 400 megawatts on average. Some could be even smaller than that. Some of them are very similar to what we see today, just a scaled-down version. Some others are, are very different, have very different fuel. It's sort of a molten salt or they use liquid metal. Say there's about 70 different designs in the works right now. And, and it's a pretty broad spectrum, a much broader spectrum than what you have on the large reactor. So when you say SMRs, it's actually a very, very diverse group of designs. And the ones that are on the simpler end of things, actually very similar to what we see in the current reactors, they're getting quite close to be licensed. Of course, the other ones, they're, they're going to take a little longer, but you have very different applications of them where you can make 
high quality steam for industrial processes. They can be great for desalination, hydrogen production. There's so many different applications of them that it's, uh, and some of them actually use uh, spent nuclear fuel as, as the regular fuel. So it's just starting to pick up, starting with the more simpler designs in the next five or so years. And then over the next decade or two, we're going to see, I think, a really fast development in more and more applications and exotic designs, if you will. All of them has pros and cons, but uh, but overall, there's some very interesting technical developments. Very cool. That's going to be fun to watch develop. John, let's go back to you for a minute. You mentioned over at the conference over in London, you had over 40 meetings with different fund companies. What was kind of the general theme there? What was the interest or the enthusiasm that uh, was coming from those meetings? Yeah, well, well, if you look at the world of commodities this year, it's been a choppy year. Uranium has been the standout. It's the best performing commodity this year. It's probably up 35% or so for the calendar year. And that is in sharp contrast to a number of other commodities that are down 20, 30, 40, or even more percent. So it's the one commodity that's working. So I think that gets naturally attention. People start doing homework on the commodity and realize that, you know, it's really somewhat recession-proof, meaning it's not economically sensitive like other industrial metals are. It's something that you absolutely need to run your power plant with. So it's less economically sensitive for sure. You know, the WNA put out a new forecast for uranium demand in the coming decades. And sure enough, they've increased the picture. And so that much brighter outlook provides, I think, very long-term durable demand, you know, anywhere from four to 5% per year. And on the flip side, you know, we had a lost decade in uranium, meaning we had a decade after the Fukushima accident where there was very little capital in the sector. There was very little research and and exploration and and development. And so we've got ourselves into a situation where there is a supply deficit that could form in the coming years unless we take action now and, and build new capacity. And I think that's why the sector got a lot of renewed interest because capital needs to come back into the sector. Uh, and that obviously will create new investment opportunities, whether that's uh, in many of the different uranium mining companies that we invest in through our ETFs or the physical commodity itself. Now, are you seeing this from the Wall Street point of view or is it larger institutions showing interest? You know, who's the sort of the typical investor that you're meeting with today And you think this is still very early days for people looking at this from an investment point of view? Yeah, it's a great question. I often get asked in meetings, what kinds of funds do you talk to? Because everyone's trying to gauge, you know, how well known has this story become? And I often will tell them that the sweet spot seems to be around anywhere from $100 million up to $30 billion. That seems to be the sweet spot because these funds are more nimble. They can deploy capital quicker. They tend to be family offices, different energy transition type of funds, some generalists as well and hedge funds. But and and I also get asked the question, okay, well, that's great. It doesn't sound crowded. But what about the big guys? And my answer consistently has been, well, they're nowhere to be found yet. And it's simple. It's it's just this is still in a, a sector that's quite small. And it's still in a recovery phase. And and the big money really can't get that well positioned because there just isn't the depth of company and the liquidity that they're looking for. So I think that's a good sign when you don't have all the capital rushing in at once. And um, I think the investors that we've talked to that have done their work over the last couple of years in the sector obviously have been very well rewarded. 
Well, you know, we talked about the investors a bit. You know, Para, let's go back to you for a moment and talk about the users, the, the utilities out there. Anything changing on that landscape? Are we seeing more utilities kind of come back into the market, have more conversations with you all? You know, what's the general uh, temperature of, of the utility companies these days? Well, it's uh, it's definitely heating up. I would say this looking into the next couple of months here after the summer, I think we, we've been counting about seven or eight utility tenders, and which is a lot more than you normally would see. And this is only within the next two months. So I think if you add up the demand of this, it's probably in the term tune of 15 to 20 million pounds that will be contracted for deliveries in, say, the next five years or so. And if you add up the numbers, I just talking to some price reporters here recently, and they said they, they think it's about at least 10 utilities with demand in 2024. And this is at the time when supply is very, very tight, not only the spot market, but also stretching out into 25 and 26. There's a lot, a lot of material there. And uh, and they're basically advising the price reporters or consultants are advising utilities that take what you can get, essentially. So it's definitely getting into a much tighter situation than it's been before. Well, let's let's shift to the supply side for a minute. Both of you separately have talked about this in the past, about what it takes price-wise for an existing mine to restart or turn the switch back on versus a new mine coming online today. What are we seeing from a supply side? Per, let's start with you on that. Are you seeing more discoveries? you seeing new mines or is it simply just existing mines kind of flipping the switching and going back into production? What's, what's the overall uh, landscape there? After Fukushima, there was absolutely nothing spent on any kind of exploration at all. Now, the existing ore bodies that we're looking at today, they've been known for quite some time, but they just haven't been developed yet because the economics haven't been there. Now what we're seeing, Cameco is ramping up their assets, uh, the Kazakhs are ramping up as well. But this is already to meet demand that the pounds have already been contracted for. So they're already committed and sold, essentially. And then right at the start of the conference, uh, there was an announcement from Cameco that uh, they've having some production issues at the, the two largest flagship productions of MacArthur River and, and Cigar Lake. And it's about 2.7 million pounds that are going to be shortfall this year, essentially. Now, all of that is not Cameco's portion. That might be a million and a half pound. But then their big, uh, their big partner, Orano, the French company, there it's about a million pounds for them. So that's something that these companies will obviously have to find somewhere else and make up for. How about on the discovery side then? You know, was there any talk at the conference about kind of quote unquote new discoveries as it relates to new mines going out there and looking for stuff? Any, any word on that? Yeah, maybe I'll take that one, Ed. I mean, um, I think the reality is that a lot of discoveries have been made. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were made a long time ago. Discoveries might have been made in 2012 or 2014, and the mines are nowhere near being built yet because they haven't started them. And and the reason for that is simple. We just have not been in a pricing environment that would incentivize the financing and the ultimate construction of these new deposits. That's obviously changing, and we think that in this current cycle, we will finally get new greenfield production to market. But if you think about some of these mines I mentioned to you that are the most likely to come online, you know, let's say they get built in uh, the end of this decade. You know, you're talking about almost 15 years from discovery to actual production. It's a very long cycle, particularly when you, you've got a, a bear market squished in there to begin with. The supply response is coming, but it's going to come slow. And that's just because, as I mentioned, we lost a lot of years in terms of exploration development while the sector was in a bear market. 
Well, that's got to explain at least part of the move we've seen here more recently. Can both of you kind of dive into what we've seen from a price movement, both in, in uranium itself, but also in the miners? We've seen quite a bit of a, a move here. John, I know you mentioned, you know, from a performance standpoint, it's been really one of the bright spots and commodities in general. Anything else that we're missing that you think is driving that price? And, and what's your outlook for that price over the next couple of years? I think investors are looking for new ideas. I mean, the market has been so one dimensional for so long with a very small number of large cap tech stocks really driving a lot of the returns within the bellwether indexes. And I think people are looking for new ideas. It's hard to find growth. And I think it's it's fair to say that this sector has very resilient growth ahead of it, albeit small percentages, but it's growing. And you know the supply demand fundamentals look very good and supportive of higher pricing. And higher pricing is what you need to generate a supply response. And that supply response provides the industry with long-term security supply. So, you know, everybody wins here. And I think that's the the crux of the investment thesis that many investors have uh, shared with us. How about from a, a geopolitical standpoint? It seems like both sides of the aisle have agreed that we need nuclear going forward if we want to get to this carbon neutral footprint. Any new developments there that came out of the conference? I don't know about at the conference, but I think the one thing we highlighted in a lot of our institutional meetings in London was that there are 15 different bills working through the U.S. House right now. And I think that says a lot in itself. I don't think the U.S. government even said the word uranium two or three years ago or nuclear energy. It's just been a sea change in focus. And that focus is really being driven by efforts to decarbonize, the growing reality that nuclear provides incredible baseload power. It backs up intermittency of renewable energy very effectively. And then finally, everyone is focused on energy security following the the massive price spikes we saw in many commodities after the war broke out in the Ukraine. This has now become very top of mind for governments, not just in the United States, but around the globe. They're now pivoting back to nuclear energy as a way to, to tick all these boxes in terms of energy transition, security and reliability. And I think that's very powerful because the industry was basically left for dead for a long time. And I think that's why the industry and and the mood at the conference has been so positive. Well, you know, you talk a lot about that from a security standpoint and where we are from the baseload standpoint and, and all the opportunities. Anything on the risk side that our listeners should be thinking about or be aware of, you know, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's mines themselves, what risks or things could maybe go bump in the night as more investors look to allocate to this space? It's it's tough to come up with something. Absolutely, if uh, if you're looking at investor invest in certain uh, mining companies, yeah, there are certain jurisdictions that might be riskier than others. Absolutely, uh, obviously, there is a lot of focus on, on Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, Central Asia. How does that material get to the West? Well, the Chinese are positioning themselves, and yeah, well, it's very easy for them to take that, and their program is growing by 10, 12 reactors a year. So they're gonna need that, and gonna need more and more. And even Russia is having some issues, allegedly, in getting physical uranium to their borders as well that they need for their domestic programs and all the uh, and conversion and enrichment capacity that they have. So they're also turning up the heat a little bit and saying that, hey, we need we need deliveries here as well. And obviously, the, the West has left them. Well, what, what, what do you get if you're in the West? Canada is the obvious choice. Uh, you have Australia, of course. Now, Africa would be the clear third, and Namibia is clearly, uh, even though a lot of the mines there are owned by the Chinese, uh, but some of the material finds its way to the West too. 
But clearly, one cause for concern is the development in Niger, where uh, Orano now has shut off production at the Somer mine uh, and say, we'll, we'll wait until there's a more pro-French government in place before we turn it on. And this is five million pounds a year. They don't deliver on a, on a monthly basis anyway, so there's a good chance this will all be uh, sorted out before you're starting to see any meaningful implications of it. But it's clearly another factor to keep an eye on, another thing to add to all the, all the potential bullish scenarios here. So it's uh, hard to come up on the bear side, but it really is pointing a lot in one direction. And I think we've been saying that for quite some time now, but it's, uh, it's a very convincing case anyway. Yeah, you're certainly seeing in the price action. And, and, you know, as I think I mentioned to both of you before this call, now we're even hearing advisors asking us questions about it and individual investors. It's really starting to become more Main Street, which I think is, is just the beginning of some real enthusiasm here. Gentlemen, before we sign off, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to convey whether it's from an opportunity standpoint or just a general theme standpoint. John, why don't we start with you? Is there anything I missed that I didn't ask that, that you wanted to leave the listeners with today? Yeah, well, I think you touched on it a second ago in that this investment thematic is being more understood. People are doing more research. It is a complex topic, so it's not like you can, can figure all this out an hour or two. So we often spend a lot of time with very large institutions, walking them through the fundamentals and the and the fuel chain and, and helping them understand how it all fits together. You know, when you see the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or Barron's or these kind of mainstream publications writing about this topic, whether it's, you know, the renewed interest in nuclear energy or some of the, the uranium companies, you know, I think that's very powerful. It's, it's getting this message out. People see the price action, you know, not that we're touting short-term performance, but you know, all you have to do is, is look at what's going on in the sector the last three years, and it, it's really performing well. It is volatile, so you have to, you know, ride the ups and downs, but the trend is clearly higher. I think that's what's getting a lot of attention. So we're, we're I think we're going to be very busy for the balance of the year. Yeah, I would agree with that. Pear, anything you want to close out with? Well, we can go back a little bit to where we started with, uh, with the WNA uh, symposium here, because what they do uh, every two years at the symposium is to come up with a report. It's called the Nuclear Fuel Report. And, uh, and so it's updated every two years, and you basically have the supply and demand situation in a fairly objective manner. And the big news this year as versus two years ago, well, first of all, it's up by quite a significant bit. Uh, and also, for the first time, we've seen the presence of SMR demand in there. So... Uh, it's uh, 35 gigawatt by 2040. So sure, it's an abstract number and a long part of like a fairly far distant future. But it's all starting to kick in as well, not just in the short term, but it's it's the more fundamental demand that's going to be starting to driving this uh, this development here. So uh, a lot of interesting times to come ahead. Well, gentlemen, as always, it's, it's a treat to have you both on. As much as I read all the material that both WMC and, and Sprott puts out, I feel like I'm always learning from you guys every time I talk to you as well. So thank you for taking the time today. For those that want to learn more about Sprott and WMC, I encourage you to go to our websites. Uh, you can go to Sprott.com. That's S-P-R-O-T-T.com. And for those that want to learn more about WMC Group, you can go to WMCGROUP. Dot com and they do a nice job on there as well talking about the opportunities and the space all right thank you all and, and thank you for listening once again my name is ed coin and you're listening to sprout radio this podcast is provided for information purposes only from sources believed to be reliable 
However, Sprott does not warrant its completeness or accuracy. Any opinions and estimates constitute our judgment as of the date of this material and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This communication is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument. Any opinions and recommendations herein do not take into account individual client circumstances, objectives or needs and are not intended as recommendations of particular securities, financial instruments or strategies. You must make your own independent decisions regarding any securities, financial instruments or strategies mentioned or related to the information herein. This communication may not be redistributed or retransmitted in whole or in part or in any form or manner without the express written consent of Sprott. Any unauthorized use or disclosure is prohibited. Receipt and review of this information constitutes your agreement not to redistribute or retransmit the contents and information contained in this communication without first obtaining express permission from an authorized officer of Sprott.